Uh, grab your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians 10. Um, a little over a year ago, uh, my family and I came down with uh, a little virus known as the coronavirus. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. And um, so uh, I had two messages ready to go. And uh, we obviously weren't here because of the coronavirus. And so uh, I've been sitting on this study ever since then. Uh, I knew the Lord will have us look at it at some point. Um, uh, given the last minute nature, um, I wasn't able to us to look at our readings through, given that we've been in, in Second Kings, and that takes some time to, to dive into those. So if you will just be patient with me, we won't be looking at our readings this, this evening. We'll be looking at a very different passage. But we've done a series off and on. I think this is our fourth round of it. I've simply called Misquoted. And it's, it's verses in the Bible, we all know and we all quote, often out of context. I believe the first one we looked at was, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Um, and uh, actually, no, the first one was, um, I know the plans I have for you from Jeremiah 29. Uh, and it's, it's all about the Babylonian captivity, but we, it's on every graduation card you've ever given. Um, and so we've looked at several of those, and this, was, this is certainly one that we cite, and, and often in, in a good context, not its original context. And so it is good to, to, to look at these verses we know well, but often take out a context to really see what is it God's really saying through, through these passages. So if you will stand with me, we want to read one verse, but of course we'll be looking at much more. 1 Corinthians 10, uh, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Our Father asks, as always, you to open our entire being uh, that we may receive and apply your word. Transform us as we are transfixed on Jesus. We had decrease so you can increase. Name your son, we pray. Amen. Seated. One of the things I, I, I've found that Christians struggle with, one would be evangelism, if we're honest. Another would be comforting those who are suffering. Uh, we often ask, you know, what do you say in those sort of moments? And there really isn't any right answer to those. I have found that presence matters more than what it is that, that, that we say. But how it is that we approach suffering is, is a difficult subject and how we go about it. And one of the greatest mysteries we feel in such moments is, is knowing what to say, but also how to understand it. So one of the things we like to say in those, those moments is, is you know, you, you, you'll be okay and, um, you know, just hang in there and we support you and stuff like that. Another thing we like to say is, don't worry, God won't give you more than you can handle. We say this all the time. I say this and I am certainly guilty of it. It sounds very spiritual. And it is somewhat comforting knowing that though it may be overwhelming what it is you are going through, the good news is that God knows your limits and that God will get you and see you through all this. But is it biblical? The biblical evidence often cited is here in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, where it says, God will not let you to be tempted beyond what you are able. And he will provide the way of escape for you so you can endure it. 
But is Paul talking about a theology of suffering here? I think even a simple reading will reveal that's not really what it is he is talking about. Let's go back and talk a little bit about what Paul has to say about suffering. And perhaps no one more, at least in the record, suffers more for the cause of Christ than the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. And throughout his Corinthian correspondence, particularly in 2 Corinthians, he mentions and highlights his suffering. In fact, 2 Corinthians provides us a good theology of suffering. So so if you will, uh, will you go to uh, 2 Corinthians 6? 2 Corinthians 6. We'll come back to to, the chapter 10, but just for now, 2 Corinthians 6. I want to look at a few passages here. We'll start in verse 3. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 3. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be uh, found um, with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance. In afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech, the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown yet well known, as dying, behold, we live, as punished yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. Likewise, skip to chapter 11 of Second Corinthians. Chapter 11, starting in verse 24. Here he gives a litany. That, that was very generic in chapter 6. Here is more specific in chapter 11. Five times, verse 24, I received the hands of the Jews, the 40 lashes, less once, 39 lashes, probably the same thing Jesus would have received. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. In night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at the sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, and hunger and thirst, off without food, and cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not Indignant. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Aratus was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize him, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. You can pick any of these, and it would be overwhelming for the average American evangelical to suffer through. Yet this is his resume. One thing that sticks out to me whenever I read this is, is he'll say that he was, of course, whipped 39 times, or whipped, uh, how many was it? Um, uh, five times. Three times he was beaten with rod, rods, and one time he was stoned nearly to death. You know the story is in Acts 14, one of my favorite stories in Acts. He is stoned presumably to death. Everyone thinks he's dead. They drag his carcass out of the city to leave it to rot. He wakes up hours later, and the first thing he does, he walks right back into the city, appoints elders at the church, and then moves on to the next one. Doesn't even hire a lawyer, right? I mean, come on, buddy. I mean, the man certainly suffered. Or go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 2 Corinthians 1. One little last stop here. 2 Corinthians 1, if we had had time, and we certainly could, we, 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 chapter 1 um, 
is, is all about how to comfort those who are suffering. We've looked at it before. I just want to highlight two verses, 2 Corinthians 1, verse 8 and 9. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experience in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Did you notice what he just said there? Remember, the question is, will God allow us to suffer beyond what our ability is to handle it? Notice what it is that the Paul states there. Our affliction in Asia was so great that we, our strength was, uh, that our burden was beyond our strength and we dis- despaired of life. Lord Jesus, take my life, he says. This burden, this suffering which you have cast upon us is too much to carry. So on the one hand, it would seem that Paul tells us that God would never give you more than what you can handle. On the other hand, Paul is confessing that is exactly what God did to him. So which is it? Well, if we go back to 1 Corinthians 10, context, remember a text without a context is the pretext for a proof text. 1 Corinthians 10, there's a context here. And what Paul is doing in this very divided church is he's taking us back to his Jewish ancestors in the wilderness. And it's important for Paul to consider the order of things. The first of all, the Israelites were redeemed, right? And and that God powerfully liberated them out of slavery, right? That's the beginning of the Jewish story, at least as it relates to 1 Corinthians 10. The problem is, is that when they leave Egypt, they don't go immediately into the promised land. What there is, is there is this 40-year gap between redemption and renewal. And what it is that you, you get here is 40 years of temptation and suffering. And Paul is highlighting that point. Their experience in the wilderness was not in pursuit of redemption. They were, after all, people already redeemed. However, despite their redemption, they faced the constant onslaught of temptation. Their struggle was so great, they repeatedly wanted to return to their old slavery. And Paul is warning the Corinthians that they are in danger of doing the same exact thing. Having been redeemed, they demonstrated a desire to return to the same old temptations that they were saved from. Remember that, that in Corinth, um, the licentiousness, if I can use that term, it's a, a cleaner term, was rampant. It was a port city. So you can find anything and everything in the port city. So much so that central to Corinthian worship uh, was uh, very uh, licentious and, and, and erotic things. And so here you have Christians who have been called out of that, and here they are in the church being tempted to go back into it. So, let's look at the historical context, verses 1 to 6. From the beginning, Paul demonstrates that though generations separate the Corinthians and the Jews, human nature has not changed. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized in the Moses and the cloud in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the same spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they, they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, 
that we might not desire evil as they did. Notice there, Paul is saying when you read the story of the Jews in the wilderness, it is our story that we are reading. Human nature hasn't changed. It was written for our example. After all, he said we saw in verse 13, there is no temptation that is not common. What they face, we face. So notice that both they and we are under the same cloud, that is, the, the leading of the Holy Spirit through the wilderness. We are passing through the same sea. Paul uh, uses typology to see the passing of the Red Sea as a, as a type of baptism. They ate of the same spiritual food. That which sustains them in the wilderness is what sustains us now, the bread of life. They drink from the same spiritual drink. Right? It's the same story. Their redemption, their struggles is our redemption and our struggles. Now, reading through the scripture through this Christological lens is very helpful. Notice that Paul says that what is leading them is Christ. And this is where the New Testament does help us to read the Old Testament, although we have to be careful with some of that. But notice Paul says explicitly that when they come to the rock, the rock was Christ. Have you ever really thought about that? It ever bothered you that Moses was kicked out of the promised land because he struck the rock twice? Most people struggle with that. Not if you see the rock as Christ. Because Christ only needs to be struck once to redeem his people. And Paul is stating here, the rock is Christ. So here, here they are, people redeemed. And there at its center is Christ. The same cloud, the same waters, the same baptism, the same food, the same drink. And this is all summarized by Paul in verse 6. These things took place as an example for us. And so we see in the Jewish experience our story. George Morrison family said it took one night to get Israel out of Egypt. It took 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel. The two main temptations worth highlighting, we won't go back in Exodus and look at them, so I trust you have some familiarity with them. The first is the temptation of thirst. Exodus 15, 22 to 27. The Jews go three days without water in the desert, and rightly, they become desperate. Now, let's imagine the average American going three hours in the morning without coffee, okay? We couldn't survive that. Now, I don't drink coffee, right? But if you see me rolling in here on a Sunday morning with hot chocolate out of Starbucks, I'm tired, and I'd rather be left alone, okay? That's, that's about as close as, 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 as I can get. But they go three days without water in, in, in the desert. They, of course, they become desperate. And when they finally find water, it's, it's, it adds insult to injury. It's, it's bitter. It's like being lost at sea, dying of thirst, and you know you can't drink the, the endless amount of water that is beneath you. So they call the place Mara, meaning bitter. And, of course, Ruth's mother-in-law, remember, she changes her name to Mara, meaning bitter. And then they begin to grumble as God's people are prone to do. Moses responds by crying out to God who tells him to throw a log into the water, making the water sweet. And by the end, God makes a covenant with his people. If they will follow him, they will never be thirsty again. Right? That's the point of the story. They face temptation. Why don't we just go back into Egypt to our old way of slavery? At least we have plenty of water there. After all, the Nile River ran right through it. Likewise, they struggled in the next chapter with food. Notice the emphasis on the appetites. We've talked about that a thousand times. I don't want to go over that again. So they go from being thirsty, and now they are starving. In chapter 16, they, they romanticize their slavery. Why? Because as Russell Moore puts it, they'd rather be fed than to be free. 
They'd rather be whipped, abused, and enslaved than to wander in the wilderness following God's commands. Life was just easier that way. They knew where dinner was coming. So incensed are they, they accuse Moses of treason. You have let, let us out here so that we may die of starvation and heat stroke. So once again, God must provide for his people by sending manna and quail from heaven. By this means, God provides for his people. Yet despite the daily provisions God offers the Jews, they continue to grumble. And they grumble because they have forgotten their Redeemer. They haven't forgotten they've been redeemed. They know, after all, they're no longer slaves. They have forgotten the one who redeemed them. So as a result, they are caught in a cycle of discontented grumbling. And at the root of our complaining is the confession, as it was for theirs, that God is not enough. They'd rather be slaves in Egypt than free men of God in the wilderness. And this discontentment we need to see leads them down a path towards idolatry. you, you got to see that. What begins with temptation will climax in Exodus in idolatry. They're constantly hungry. They're constantly thirsty. And because of that, then God isn't giving them enough. And they become discontented with their Redeemer. And in that discontentment, they turn to other gods. And again, I wish we had time to go into the Exodus story you can see this particularly with the uh, golden calf. So Paul picks up on this starting in verse 7. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. Notice we went from temptation to idolatry. Do not be idolatry as some of them were as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Notice what they want is their appetites to be satisfied. And remember, in the Bible, the physical appetites are, uh, are, are, are pictures of our spiritual appetites, our, our moral appetites, or we should say immoral appetites. We, we hunger and thirst for things other than the Word of God. And so... Because they are hungry and thirsting and wanting to play, what is it that, that they do? They turn to other idols. Verse 8, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. So the golden calf is, is a great tale of this, right? Moses goes up into the cloud, the cloud has been leading them at Mount Sinai, the presence of God. He disappears for 40 days. 40 days is often, often though not always, a, a, a time of trial or tempting or judgment or something like that. So Moses goes for 40 days, and what did the people of Israel do? They say, well, he has abandoned us. Make for us a God who will save us. So they turn to the Canaanite Egyptian cattle gods. Notice verse 9, we, in contrast to them, must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Now we're in the book of Numbers nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by their story. Now notice that, 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 that what was manifested as grumbling was at its root idolatry. Did you ever consider that? I want you to think about your whining, complaining, and grumbling. Maybe you say, well, I never do that. Okay, after you repent of your lying, get online and find someone who was whining, complaining, and grumbling. You can pick anything at random and you will find it. At its root, like all sin, is idolatry. We want to be the center of the universe. We wish things were a certain way, which God did things the way we, we would think he should do things. Notice again, verse 11. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of ages has come. 
So you'll notice then that verse 6 is they have false worship. Verse 8 is sexual immorality, going to the story of Balaam. And verses 9 through 10 is idolatry leads to faithlessness. So he says, uh, you saw it there. The summary is then in verses 11 through 12. Now these things happen to them as an example. They are written down for our instruction on the end of ages to come. Verse 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. So the Jews are a picture for us, a warning to us in the wilderness that we too haven't been redeemed, are awaiting the final promised land. And what it is we have here is a time of testing and longing for something greater. We are sojourners. And what we will face is temptation. And part of that is suffering. But notice what his main emphasis has been all along. How is it in a godless age do the people of God not surrender to temptation? That's the question. This entire passage essentially has little to nothing to say about suffering. We may be able to make some applications of it. For suffering and our desire to be free from it is a type of temptation. But it's really about temptation. Here, Paul warns us that temptations lead us not just down towards sin, they ultimately lead us down a path towards open idolatry, which is where this divided church is heading. So, Paul then turns to our verse here in verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Did you notice what he said there? The temptations you face today in 21st century uh, America, unique to our times perhaps, perhaps, but is the same temptation humanity has always faced. One of the things we, we, we need to note is humanity is good at is changing the external. Modern medicine has, has done incredible things. I've been in contact with one of our members today who has a family member uh, who, who was rushed to the hospital uh, this morning and, and keep, or yesterday and keeping up with some of that. And I remember saying that, that modern medicine is a genuine example of common grace. That through human ingenuity and technology and science and everything else, what we can do with modern medicine is absolutely incredible today. We're good at the external. What we're not good is changing the internal. We, we can take a, you know, a kidney from this person and put it into this person, but we cannot change the heart, spiritually speaking, of anyone by any means. We just can't do it. However we see, that when we look into the past, which is why the Bible is constantly calling us to remember, we see us, the same temptations our ancestors face, we face today. So the first thing he wants you, he wants you to know about temptation is you are not alone in facing this temptation. I think this is something particularly younger generations struggle with. The more I interact with, with younger generations, and I'm starting to reach the age where I can say that, you know, young folks today— is, is many of them think that my anxieties, no one else has. My struggles, no one else is having. My difficulties are unique to me. My hardships are unique to me. And one of the things I like to remind them is that that, that, that isn't true at all. In fact, everything you're sharing with me is what every person has ever struggled with in the history of humanity. Every single one of us. 
And Paul's making that point. Look into your Bibles or look into history. What you will find is the same temptations. But the second thing he wants us to see here is that though though temptation is universal, it is limited. That's what it is that we see in the rest of verse 13, isn't it? That God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will always provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You see there? It is saying to us, if you will fight temptation, you will win against it. Grace is sufficient for you and I. Grace is sufficient for you and I. Can, 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 I, can I prove that uh, to you here? So just, just bookmark this. Why not? We're not doing anything else. Turn to Matthew chapter 4. Why not? This isn't even my note, so this is free. Matthew 4. This is Jesus' temptation. You state workers don't... State workers don't start tomorrow, and who knows? This is probably another three-day-a-weekend. For why? I don't know. You state workers get those days off all the time, don't you? All right, Matthew 4. This is the temptation of Jesus. I want you to notice a pattern here. Jesus was led up by the Spirit in the wilderness. Now, first of all, chapter 3 is the baptism. He goes through the same waters, right? The baptism, right? But instead of going uh, into the waters into the promised land, he goes into the waters into the wilderness, right? So, so we see the story of Israel. We've pointed that out a thousand times before. He was led up by the Spirit, much as Israel was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness, to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, notice he's gone without food and water for a long time. As Israel was for 40 years, he's with 40 days and 40 nights. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Just pause there. Notice, first of all, the first temptation has to do with bread. Bread in the wilderness. Have you read that story before? Yeah. Where's the bread? And notice he is called the son of God. Much as God told Moses at the burning bush, these are my sons, and I want to bring them to me in, at this mountain. If you are the sons of God. By the way, notice that the tempter, at the root of his temptation, is a question of identity. If God really loves you, if you really are his son, why then are you suffering? It's a good question, isn't it? We still fall for it today. Turn these stones into bread. And remember, this is a wilderness not of sand, but of rocks. So it isn't, so it, it's an abundance of bread. He has the power to do it. After all, if he can make bread fall from the sky, why can't he bread come from the ground? But Jesus says, it is written, verse 4, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. It's quoting Deuteronomy, by the way, the final sermon of Moses, as he will in all three examples. Verse 5, then the devil took him to the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. By the way, he's quoting the Psalms. I wish we had time to get into that Psalm. I think it's Psalm 91. Check your reference Bibles. I'm doing this off the top of my head. And it is a interesting Psalm. I'll just say that. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Notice there, he, he said, see, if you would just show yourself, reveal yourself, then... Um, after all, the Bible promises God will protect you, and then people will see who you really are. So we had the lust of the flesh. Here is the pride of life. Verse 7, Jesus said to him again, is written, for you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. 
Again, the devil took him to the very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. He said, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Can we just notice something here? This is, first of all, lust of the eyes. So you have the same three temptations of the garden, same temptations you get in the wilderness, uh, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life. We've looked at those in the past again. But I want you to notice there, there's a big problem with this theology the devil has. These kingdoms are already Jesus's. Right? I will give you these. They're already his. And the kingdom he, he brings is far greater than all of them combined. Because it says there, here are the kingdoms in all their glory. And Jesus brings one that is far better than this. Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan. By the way, he'll say the same thing to Peter in Matthew 16. Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him. Behold, angels came and were ministering to him. It's, it's, it's a weird conclusion, isn't it? What do we do with that? I have an idea. You can correct me if I'm wrong. You can correct me if I'm wrong, because I could be wrong here. What was the promise that the devil read from in Psalms? You go back up there in verse 6. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. Why? It's written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. After 40 days, 40 nights of persistent and constant temptation, what did God provide for Jesus? A way out. The promise. The angels will come and minister to you. With that said, go back to 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. You're, you're not fighting this alone. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape you may be able to endure it. Now you see it? Isn't this the hope that we have in Christ? That we look not to the Jews to see how to fail, but we look to Christ to see how to, how to endure, how to triumph. And this is why the writer of Hebrews will say in Hebrews 4.15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Same thing, Hebrews 2, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Right there. We don't need to call on the angels. We'll call on the Son. C.S. Lewis is right when he said, no one has really truly faced the, the ultimate onslaught of temptation because the minute you give in to temptation, it's over with. Only Christ has suffered the true onslaught of temptation because he never surrendered to it. And in his victory is ours. God has provided a way for us to endure it, hasn't he? Through Jesus Christ and him risen from the dead. That is what Paul is saying here. Not look to yourself, but look to Christ. Let's go to Lord in prayer.